Uh, just before we get started, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll begin at paragraph 154, which in Robertson's Harmony is on page 209, and we'll start with uh, John chapter 18. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening, the opportunity we have to study your word, and uh, to look at this segment of the uh, final uh, road to the to the uh, death of our Messiah, the atonement he provides, and uh, his resurrection and glorification. So, Lord, uh, guide and direct us this night, we pray, for we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. On uh, paragraph 154, we're actually going to look at 154 through 158 tonight, which concerns the religious trial. By religious trial, of course, we mean the Jewish trial, the trial before the Jewish authorities. There are, in actuality, two trials that Yeshua goes through. First of all, a religious trial, a Jewish trial, and then a civil trial or a Roman trial. Both trials have different segments to it. In fact, both have three segments for a total of six segments in all, or three stages for each trial, six stages. So, for example, in paragraph 154, we have the first stage of the Jewish trial in which he is presented before Annas, the former high priest. In paragraph 155, we have the second stage of the trial of Yeshua, the religious trial, in which he is brought before Caiaphas. And then in paragraph 157, we have the third stage of the religious trial where he is brought before the entire Sanhedrin and where he is condemned. Paragraph 154, the first stage of the Jewish trial before Annas and the issue of the religious trial or the issue they want to present so as to bring Yeshua uh, up for a judgment is the matter of blasphemy. This is the issue in the religious trial. It is not the issue in the civil trial. In the civil trial, they want to bring out that he is a rebelling against Rome. But here, we're looking at the religious trial and the issue of blasphemy. Now, paragraph 154, which is covered by John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, and then verses 19 through 23, Yeshua is brought before Annas, the former high priest. He served as high priest from A.D. 7 to A.D. 14. He was deposed by the Roman governor, Valerius Gratus. But he was able to, control, to retain control of the priesthood because when he was deposed, he was then followed by four of his own sons. And then after his four sons... The priesthood was taken over by his son-in-law, Caiaphas, which is what we see here. And then after Caiaphas's tenure as high priest, uh, the priesthood was led by his grandson. So because of these family ties, he continued to retain control even while deposed. Of course, he was a Sadducee, but he also controlled the business ventures that were conducted on the temple compound such as that which was uh, led by the money changers, for example. It was his business venture. And in the Talmud, we read of Annas's Bazaar, 
because of the financial gain he had made through it. Keep in mind that Yeshua, during his first Passover and his last Passover, his public ministry, he overthrows the tables of the money changers and, and berates them for turning the house of prayer into a house of business. So on one hand, Annas has a, pub, a, a, um, uh, a personal matter with Yeshua because he's challenged the business ventures that he controlled on the Temple Mount. The purpose of this religious trial is to establish a religious charge against Yeshua. As the trial unfolds, they experience a great deal of confusion because they did not expect to have a trial that night. Remember, they wanted to arrest Yeshua and have a trial after Passover when there weren't as many people in Jerusalem. According to Josephus, at the Passover, the city of Jerusalem would swell to over 250,000 people. They didn't want to riot on their hands, so they wanted to wait until the Passover was over. There were less people in the city. And thus they would arrest him, bring him before Pilate, and have him uh, executed. The problem is, though, that, they ha- that he is arrested during the Passover, and thus confusion begins to ensue. The, the matter of not having a witness, Judas's disappearance, also adds to this confusion. In verse 12, we're told that Yeshua was brought before Annas. So the band and the chief captains and the officers of the Jewish people, they seized Yeshua, they bound him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then they led him to Annas first. He was father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. By arresting Yeshua at this point, um, they're, they're breaking. We talked about the various different rules of the Sanhedrin and rules regarding the trial. And in arresting him at this point and bringing him before Annas, they're breaking one of the rules, rule number four, which stated that there could be no trial before the morning sacrifice. And of course, this is already taking place before that morning sacrifice, and therefore they're in violation of this rule. In verses 20 and 21, we read, Yeshua says, I've spoken openly to the world. I ever taught in synagogues in the temple where all the Jewish people come together. And in secret, I never spoke anything. Why do you ask me? Ask them that have heard me what I spoke unto them. And so uh, when they bring him before Annas, they are in effect bringing him in a secret context or in a non-public context, and thus they're violating the fifth rule, which said all trials were to be public, secret trials were to be forbidden so as to avoid conspiracy. And so here they're bringing him in a private moment before Annas rather than in a public venue, and thus they're violating uh, their fifth uh, rule. In verse 19, Annas asks Yeshua about two things. Look at verse 19. The high priest therefore asked Yeshua of his disciples and of his teaching. The first thing he asked about are his disciples so as to incriminate them. And secondly, he asked them about his teachings so as to incriminate Yeshua as well. 
You'll notice that when Yeshua is asked various questions, he does not respond. He doesn't respond because they are, the accusers, are responsible to provide two or three witnesses regarding the accusations that are being brought against him. Since there are no witnesses, Yeshua is quiet. Yeshua also has been teaching publicly. So therefore, they should not have any problem bringing before them some witnesses so as to condemn them. But there are no witnesses, and Judas is not on the scene. In verse uh, 21, Yeshua responds, um, and he says, I've spoken openly to the world. And he says, why do you ask me? Ask them that have heard me what I spoke unto them. Behold, these know the things which I said. And when he said this, one of the officers standing by struck Yeshua with his hand and said, do you answer the high priest in this manner? So because Yeshua responds as he does at this point, he is beaten several times at this night. But the authorities cannot produce a specific charge against him. So in paragraph 155, covering Mark 14, Matthew 26, Luke chapter 22, and John chapter 18, we have the second stage of the Jewish trial. And this is the trial before Caiaphas. It says in Luke's account, verse 54, they seized him, they led him away, they brought him unto the high priest's home, or the high priest's house. The trial before Caiaphas... And the uh, now takes place, and eventually the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. He served as high priest from 25 A.D. to 36. So this is, in essence, in the midpoint of his reign or midpoint of his service as high priest. In, ver in Luke's account, verse 55, points out that they brought Yeshua into the high priest's home. The sixth law that the Sanhedrin established for itself stated that Sanhedrin trials were only to be held in the Hall of Judgment in the temple compound for the public to attend. By having this phase, this stage of the trial in uh, Caiaphas' home, they are violating this law as well. Now the Sanhedrin, which uh, will all, before whom uh, Yeshua will be brought on trial, is comprised of, composed of 71 members. We're told that 24 of the seats went to the chief priests. And uh, you remember the chief priests oversaw the 24 uh, different, um, uh, different aspects of the uh, priesthood, different courses of the priesthood. And so those 24 uh, chief priests who oversaw the courses were members of the uh, Sanhedrin. Therefore, 24 of these seats were uh, held by Sadducees. 24 of the seats went to the elders, and 24 of the seats went to the scribes. So the latter 46 seats were uh, held by Pharisees. 24 seats held by Sadducees. Uh, 46 seats were held by the Pharisees and one seat was held by the high priest. So while most of the seats were held by Pharisees, the high priest as a Sadducee basically conducted and led 
the, uh, led the trial. Not all the members of the Sanhedrin had to be there for a trial, but there had to be a minimum of 23. If you had the minimum of 23, you only needed 11 votes to acquit the accused. But you needed 13 votes to convict. So you needed two more uh, than the majority. Or you needed to have a majority of two, not one, in order to convict one that was being accused. We're not told how many members were present at Yeshua's trial. But we do know that some were not there. We know at least two, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, were not there according to the uh, gospel accounts. Now in Matthew's account, verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council sought, at least those that were present representing the whole council, sought false witnesses against Yeshua that they might put him to death. Notice that they had to seek false witnesses because they are not ready for the trial. In doing this, they violate a seventh rule in the Sanhedrin. The proper procedure for the trial was, first of all, the defense, and then the accusations. And the judges who argued for innocence were to speak before the ones who argued for guilt. But here what you have is the, those arguing for guilt are already speaking up, saying he's worthy of death, already determining the uh, judgment or the punishment. And on top of that, they're seeking false witnesses because uh, they have no witnesses to speak against Yeshua. In Matthew verse 60, it says, And they found it not, though many false witnesses came. Many false witnesses were brought. But because there are so many discrepancies, they are ultimately disqualified. Even though the council here is voting against Yeshua, no one is speaking out in his behalf, which violates an eighth rule of the Sanhedrin, that while all judges of the Sanhedrin may argue in favor of acquittal, all may not argue in favor of guilt. But yet what we have here is the whole council is gathered, Matthew 49, the whole uh, 59, the whole council, and yet they, the whole council is seeking the witnesses that they might put him to death. So there's no one arguing for his innocence. Verses 58 and 59, two witnesses finally are brought forward in Mark's account. One says, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another without hands. And not even so did their witnesses agree together. In Matthew's account, verse 61, it says, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And so the witnesses are not in agreeance, though, according to the Sanhedrin rules, all the witnesses must agree in every detail. In Mark's account, the witness said that he heard him say, I will destroy the temple. But the witness, in, as reflected in Matthew's account, said this man is able to destroy the temple. One witness was giving a statement of intent. He intends to destroy. The other was reflecting a statement of ability. I am able to destroy. So the witnesses are not agreeing, even though they may get close. 
The ninth law says that these, or the, the ninth rule of the Sanhedrin said that all of the witnesses must agree with regard to the specific details of what the accused is accused of. By Matthew verse 62, we find that the high priest Caiaphas begins to become uh, exasperated by this. Verse 62, it says, The high priest stood up and said unto him, Answer thou nothing. What is it which these witnesses uh, say against you? You answer nothing. Verse 63, it says that Yeshua held his peace. Yeshua is asked to respond. But because the witnesses did not agree, Yeshua is under no burden or no expectation to respond. And, of course, these witnesses then are violating the tenth rule. Because the accused is not permitted to testify against himself. There is to be no allowance for the accused to testify against himself. To avoid this person might be suicidal. Or that the person might be protecting someone else. Yet, the high priest is asking him to testify against himself, or at least in support of his claims. In, in Matthew 63, it then says, And the high priest said unto him, I adjure you by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And so in Matthew 63, the frustration gets even more intense for Caiaphas, so much so that he then puts Yeshua under the, under the oath. And by putting him under the oath, he must now respond. But this tells us that Caiaphas understood two things about Yeshua. He understood that he claimed to be the Messiah. He says, tell us, are you the Messiah? And he also understood that the Messiah was to be the Son of God. Because he says, tell us, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? So that in a civil trial, a Jewish trial is this. If you're placed under the oath and you are adjured by the living God, you must respond, and he does. In Mark's account, verse 62, Yeshua says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. He's saying, yes, I am the Son of God. And of course, by simply saying, I am, there is an allusion to the fact that he is indeed God come in the flesh. In Matthew's account, verse 64, he justifies this claim in two ways. Verse 64, Yeshua said unto him, You have said that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Henceforth you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So first of all, he justifies the claim by saying, I am the Messiah, but because of the unpardonable sin recorded in paragraph 61, where they, the Jewish leaders, had attributed his miracle that authenticated his claim to the evil one, the prince of demons, he said that no sign would be given to this nation except the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. But then he says, judgment is set, which would fall in 70 A.D. when the Jewish nation would be destroyed, the temple destroyed, Jerusalem destroyed. 
and the Jewish people further dispersed from their homeland. But he looks beyond that. And he now says that he has given testimony to the fact that he is the Messiah. But further now, he tells them, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And secondly, he says, you will see him come in the clouds of heaven with great glory. This seems to indicate, this is going to sound a little radical, but it seems to indicate that even those in hell, even those who have died and are separated from God, will see the second coming of the Lord. All will see Him in His glory. He will not come to save those that have rejected Him, but they will see Him. And He's saying to these who are rejecting Him, who have rejected Him and are now uh, attempting to execute Him, He says, you're going to see Me sitting at the right hand and you're going to see Me returning in the clouds of glory. Even those who are marked for judgment will see Him in all this glory. Paul says a similar thing. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And Yeshua is saying those uh, that, very same, that very same thing. In Matthew verse 65, then uh, a number of events occur very quickly. In Matthew 65, first of all, it says, When he heard Yeshua say, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of the Father, and you're going to see me come in the clouds of heaven. Matthew records the high priest Caiaphas then responds. The first thing he does is he tears his garments. Rule number 11, based on Leviticus 21, verse 10, said that the high priest was forbidden to tear his garments. He, wa- it, he was forbidden to show emotion because his judgment was not to be determined on the basis of emotions, but rather the facts of the case. But here we're seeing that Caiaphas is being moved emotionally and is breaking this rule. The second thing he does is he says... He has spoken blasphemy. Here is the charge of blasphemy which the Jewish leaders are attempting to get from him uh, in the religious trial. To find him guilty of claiming to be God. But in this instance, he, Caiaphas violates the twelfth rule, which is that the charges against the defendant were not to originate with the judges. They could only investigate charges brought before them. This was to keep them neutral. But here the high priest is saying he has spoken blasphemy. He is making an accusation. He is uh, concluding or bringing to a conclusion a charge. And then he says, What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, we have heard the blasphemy. So the specific charge of blasphemy breaks rule number 13, which stated when the charge was blasphemy, the guilty could only be established if the defendant actually pronounced the very name of God, which Yeshua does not do here. 
And then Caiaphas doesn't have, he says, what need do we have for any witnesses? But the reality is he doesn't have any witnesses. So it isn't that what need do we have. It's the fact that he wants to avoid the, um, uh, the criticism being brought before him that we need to have witnesses because they don't have any witnesses. So he asks for condemnation on what Yeshua just said, which violated their 14th rule, which is a person can never be condemned on the basis of his own words alone. There must be two witnesses, but they don't have them. So in Mark verse 64, we find that there is a unanimous decision that he is guilty. What further need have we of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be worthy of death. According to the rule in the Sanhedrin, 19th rule, is that the sentence could only be pronounced, uh, excuse me, that uh, the 18th rule is that a unanimous decision for guilt showed the innocence of the individual since it was impossible for a minimum of 23 men or a maximum of 75 men to agree without some kind of plot involved. And what we have here is everyone is finding him to be guilty. Further, uh, he's, they say he is worthy of death. Verse 19, or I should say rule 19 said that a sentence could only be pronounced three days after the guilty verdict. They wanted 24 hours between the trial and the verdict and three days between the verdict and the sentence. And yet they don't permit, they don't wait 24 hours to determine whether he's guilty or innocent. And they certainly don't wait three days to determine what the sentence might be. And then if you look at Matthew verse 67, it says, Then did they spit in his face, they buffeted him, they punched him, and then they smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, Messiah, who is he that struck you? So in hitting him, they violate the, their 20th rule, which said judges were to be humane and kind. And they violated their 21st rule, which said that a person condemned to death was not to be beaten or scourged beforehand. And yet this is what they are doing. Back in paragraph 154 which is John's account, verses 22 and 23, we have the first time Yeshua experiences physical mistreatment at his, at his trial. And then when he had said this, speak to those who heard me, I spoke openly, one of the officers standing by struck him with his hand. And now in Mark's account, in verses 65 through 67, we see that they, they mistreat him for the second time. And these, through, these three mistreatments are considered significant acts of indignity that can be heaped against anyone in accordance with Jewish law. So to hit someone with the fist if found guilty was punishable by four denarii. A denarii being... Uh, understood as a day's wage, a day's wage, is that right? 
So a four denarii, or, or is that a year's wage? The denarii was a day's wage. Day's wage. So it was like four days' wages you had to pay an individual that you may have struck. A, um, if you hit someone with the palm of your hand, you would have to pay them 200 denarii. And if you spit in his face, you had to pay them, found guilty, you had to pay them 400 denarii. So there's this escalation of indignities that were heaped upon Yeshua from being uh, punched to being uh, slapped with the hand to being uh, spit upon. There's so many egregious transgressions going on here. It suggests that a couple of things. Either they didn't do this that often, so nobody knew the rules, or the enemy had control of these people and they were out of their minds. Well, remember, they're not doing this publicly, so the public isn't there to hold them to account. Understood, but not doing it publicly was part of the transgression. That's part of the transgression, yes. So what I'm saying is, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, on the one hand, I think they're aware that um, left to the judicial system that they have established, they're not going to find them guilty. And they want to find them guilty. Um, are they being motivated by demonic forces? There's no question that uh, the evil one is engaged because he has taken over Judas. And so he's engaged in this process to be sure. On the other hand, there's just the sinfulness of humanity that is manifest itself in these individuals. And remember, we, there could be as few as 23 individuals here. We don't know how many are present. We certainly know not all the Sanhedrin is there because we know the two are not there. So if it is a smaller body, say of 23, they may have been handpicked of individuals that they know will be more, uh, well, the 24 chief priests are certainly going to side against them. The, uh, the Pharisee representatives, scribes, elders that he's spoken out against, they're certainly going to take a dim view of Yeshua and no doubt desire him as we've seen throughout their encounters with him. They're desiring to see him uh, quieted. So there could be a small number who are necessarily directed against him, dead set against him and desirous of uh, him being uh, found guilty. And certainly there's, there are these spiritual forces that are at work. Do we have any idea how often they convene to deal with capital cases like this? Uh, we don't know. Uh, probably not that many. Capital cases would have been very serious matters. And they don't have jurisdiction to execute. They have to get Roman approval. So there's a two-phase stage. So I would imagine this would be reserved for only those that they were fairly certain or sure that they could get a guilty uh, verdict. Since it was the Passover, um, and we know that Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, can we assume that he was present? At this yeah, point? well, there's no question he's present in this situation with St Stephen, right, in the Acts passage, because he's there consenting to the uh, mass murder of Stephen. In Stephen's case, in, John, in Acts 7, it's not a judicial decision made by the Sanhedrin, because they're just stoning him. So it's really like a mob that has gotten so angered and so um, revved up 
that they are taking matters into their own hands, violating even Rome's uh, laws over them. And Paul is certainly there, consenting, holding their coats so that they can swing and move their arms so that they can throw a lot freer and a lot harder and a lot more accurate. If Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, and most would assume that he, that he was, then he may very well have been present if... Um, you know, certainly if all the members are there, we don't know who's missing. But based on Paul's attitude toward Yeshua and the believers in the early phase of the book of Acts, uh, certainly he would have been one that would have sided with uh, those that seek to condemn Yeshua. No question about that. So the Sanhedrin membership was taken from the pool of Pharisees? Well, you've got 24 Sadducees who are priests. But the, then you had 24 scribes and 24 elders. But the high priest controlled the trial. Right, but there were, there were 23 members of the Sanhedrin, no? There were 71 members. Oh, 71 members. Total members. But oh, you had to have yeah. at least 23, at least 23 for a trial. By the way, is that how we get the number for a grand jury? I'm not sure. I think it is. That's a good question. Okay. Uh, so... Now, uh, let me just go back here. Okay, so this phase, this stage of the trial occurred during the first night, my estimation, of Passover. So it's occurring during the first night of Passover and the first day of Passover. Because Passover occurred Thursday night when Yeshua is arrested. This is occurring between that Thursday evening when Passover established at sundown. Remember, a day in Jewish reckoning begins at sundown. So at sundown, the Passover begins. And now the following morning would be the first day of Passover. But according to the Sanhedrin rule, the 22nd rule, no trials were allowed the evening of the Sabbath or on the first day of a festival. And so despite that, they're holding this trial on that occasion shows you the degree to which they were willing to go because they wanted so badly to uh, find Yeshua guilty and to have him arrested and uh, a verdict uh, determined for his execution. In paragraph 156, during the trial of Yeshua, first before Annas, then before Caiaphas, we are told of an incident that is transpiring in another part of the temple uh, compound. And what is happening is in the event that we're going to see here is Peter's denial of Yeshua um, before the cock crowed three times. At the arrest in the garden, the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples scatter. But not all of them. Two of them follow Yeshua and the arresting party at a distance. Now, according to John's account, verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Yeshua, so did another disciple, who is, of course, a reference to John, the author of this account. We're looking at John chapter 18. Now that disciple was known unto the high priest and entered in with Yeshua into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door without. So somehow John's family and the family of the high priest 
have some kind of relationship. John doesn't describe for us, but he only says they know, the families know each other. And then in verse 15, because the servants of the high priest knew John, evidently from interactions that his family had with the high priest's family, they led him into the compound. But Peter, according to verse 16, is standing outside the door. So in verse 16 now of John chapter 18, So the other disciple, John, which was known unto the high priest, he went out, he spoke unto her that kept the door and brought Peter in. So John knew the person keeping the door because John had oftentimes come through in meeting with the high priest. The person keeping the door knew John. John goes after him and says, hey, listen, that's a friend of mine. Would you let him in as well? Oh, sure, John. A friend of yours, a friend of ours. And Peter is allowed in to the compound as well. As he's let in, verse 17, the maid therefore that kept, or the maiden that kept the door, said unto Peter, recognized Peter, saw him in the temple area with Yeshua at some point, and says unto one of, uh, and, and, and said, are you also one of his disciples? And he said, verse 18, I am not. So the maiden that kept, was keeping watch at the door, recognized Peter, asked if he is one of his disciples, but Peter utters his first denial. In Matthew's account, looking at Matthew chapter 26, verse 70, his denial is a very simple denial. He says, but he denied before them all, I do not know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're saying. He knew what he was saying. He didn't know what he was talking about. He was saying, I'm not one of his disciples. In Mark's account, verse 68, it says that um, when he responded, it said, and then the cock crew, crew, uh, crew crowed. Crew is preterite, you know, middle English, middle Elizabeth English. English. It's old. Yeah. Right, because that's the King James here. And the cock crew. But it crowed uh, for the first time. Now, the reference here could mean that he crowed once. Or it could mean that he crowed at the first watch. He crowed uh, and the cock crew at the watch. If it means that he crowed at the first watch, it means that this is now about midnight when the first Uh, crowing uh, occurs. In Luke's account, verse 59, we're told that an hour transpires between the first denial and the cock crowing. Because in verse 59 it says, and after the space of about one hour, another confidently affirms, saying of a truth, this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. So an hour later is the second challenge to Peter. Peter said, man, I I don't know what you are talking about. Notice Matthew's account, verse 72, Matthew 26. And again, he denied this time with an oath. So the first time, the text simply says he denied him. The second time, he said, I promise you, I don't know him. I swear, 
I don't know him. He now says, I don't know him with an added statement of an oath to strengthen his denial. In Mark's account, verse 71, it says that he said, thirdly, but he began to curse and to swear. And so Peter's third denial, he begins to curse and he begins to swear. His fisherman background comes out. In fact, he begins to curse Yeshua directly. In verse, um, in verse 72, because he says in verse 71, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And in verse 72, and straightway, the second time, the cock crew, crowed. <laughs> if it is the second watch, this would be three in the morning now. So an hour later, he's asked, but then two hours later, he's asked a third time, and it's there that he denies him three times, and then the cock crowed the second time. In Luke's account, verse 61, it says that Peter looked into Yeshua's eyes when he denied him. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked on Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said before, he said unto him, before the cock would crow this day, you will deny me three times. So there'd be a third watch of the cock crowing, which would be like six in the morning. And Yeshua said, before that cock crows in the morning, six o'clock, he would deny him three times. And he denies him three times by three o'clock in, in, in the morning. In a three-hour period, period, Peter denied Yeshua three times. And it's at this point that the second stage of the trial comes to an end. As Yeshua is led out, they eye each other. And Peter's third denial is with Yeshua right in front of him as he is cursing. And I don't know this man. And the three accounts record for us Peter's reaction. In Mark's account, verse 72, it says, And when he thought thereon, when he thought about what he had just done, he wept. In Matthew's account, it says, And he ran out and he wept bitterly. In Luke's account, it says, And he went out and wept bitterly. Mark's account being the account of Peter, it's very interesting. He said, and when he thought about this, when he reflected on it, it's almost in that one moment, he thought about how he said he would not deny him. All these others may, but I would never deny you. Um, and yet here he found himself falling prey to, to that. Uh, gives us a real glimpse into Peter's psyche. It's not just that moment, but he really thought about what he had done. And he realized um, how horrible an act to betray uh, the Messiah or to betray your friend. And thus he wept and he wept bitterly. This all the more heightens Yeshua's 
restoration of Peter. He says, when you are restored, tend my sheep. And three times he will encourage and enable Peter to affirm his love. As he affirms his love, he's very cautious not to overstep his bounds and to say more than he ought. So he doesn't say, I agape you, but I phileo you. I love you as a brother. Because he doesn't want to overstep his words and say, yeah, I do love you and I'll give up my life for you when he denied him here. And Yeshua accepts all of that. And that says, when you're restored, tend my sheep. Of course, when Peter comes to the end of his life, he will die for his Lord and show the agape love that was kindled in his heart and developed over time. In, um, if you go back to paragraph 155, looking at Luke's account, Verse 63, because A.T. Robertson pulls some things out of order. But going back now to Luke verses 63 to 65. In this, during this second stage, it says, um, we read of the third physical mistreatment of Yeshua. And the first of eight mockeries that he endures as well. There are four mockeries that he endures before his death. And there are four mockeries that he will endure while on the cross. So there are four before he goes on to the cross and four while he is on the cross. So in verse 63 of Luke, it says, And the men that held Yeshua mocked him. Is the first of four mockeries before he is crucified. And then... The third of the physical mistreatments, and they beat him. Further, they blindfolded him, and they asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is he that struck you? And many other things spoke they against him, reviling him. In paragraph 157, we have the third stage of the Jewish civil trial, in which... The, where we have the rejection of the king and the condemnation now of the Sanhedrin. In um, Mark's account, it said, Straightway in the morning the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the whole council held a consultation. Matthew's account says, Now when morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Yeshua to put him to death. In Luke's account, verse 66, as soon as it was day. So they're now attempting to transform that which had been conducted illegally to appear legal. Because now they're waiting to the next day. They've already tried him. They've already bis, uh, abused him. They've already uh, hurt him. They've already mocked him. They've spit on him. They've done all these indignities to him. They've already said he's worthy of death. They've already condemned him. But now they want it to appear legitimate in the eyes of the public. So they wait to the morning to uh, formally, officially, or just publicly, perhaps I should say, uh, to condemn him. And in Luke's account, verse 67, Yeshua is asked two questions. Verse 67, he's asked, if you are the Messiah, 
tell us. So the first question they ask is, are you the Messiah? That's the first question. But Yeshua said unto them, to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. His comment is, it's useless to tell them because they are determined not to believe in him, but determined to execute him. But nevertheless, he says in verse 69, but from henceforth you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of the power of God. But one day you will know the truth of my claims when you see me seated at the right hand of God the Father. The second time he has said that. In verse 70, they ask him the second question. Are you the Son of God? And he responds, you say that I am. Now, in the Greek, this is, in the, this is an emphatic way of saying, yes, indeed, that is what I am saying. In other words, it's another way of saying, you said it, indeed I am. It doesn't mean you say that I am, but I didn't say that I, was, that I am. The Greek phrase means to say, I in, indeed am the Messiah of Israel. They understood that's what he meant, obviously, because verse 71, their response is, What further need have we of witnesses? For we have ourselves has heard from his own mouth. With the end of the religious trial, they condemn him to death on the basis of blasphemy. Now they need to bring him before Rome in order to have Roman approval because the Romans have taken away from the Jewish people the right of capital punishment. The Roman Senate had taken that right away from the Jewish Sanhedrin. They needed to have Roman approval. Gary, did they object to the fact that he was claiming to be the son of God in the sense that nobody could be the son of God or in that he did not fit their concept of what that person would be? Yes, I I think it's the latter. I don't think it's a, you know, that's sort of a modern phenomena, 2,000 years removed, that we look at the phrase son of God or we look at the Daniels, I saw one like the son of man. And uh, to think that they did not believe that uh, Messiah would be divine or deity. There are even some uh, Jewish scholars of later eras, like Sa'aja Haga'on, the teacher, that um, suggested that this is what the scriptures were teaching. They were reticent to be too strongly affirmative of this, but there was certainly the idea that Messiah would be divine. How that all would play out and, to, and how it is that he could be divine and not, and, and yet be the Messiah, be the son of David, that was not resolved, but uh, there were rabbinic authorities that acknowledged that he would be divine. So they based it on Tanakh somewhere. Of, yes. And some of the Targum translated paraphrases reflects this very notion. So when they said, are you the son of, Caiaphas said, are you the Messiah, the son of God? They understood the son of God to be a unique, not just to be a descendant of God or less than, but something of a divine nature that connected you with God, we would say the father, in a manner that was unique and set apart from all others. 
and probably they pictured a Joshua David warrior conqueror type. Well, they expected one to come and reign, but there are also comments about him coming as a priest, and that had some notion of providing atonement. Uh, how he would do that, not sure. But they certainly were not ready to affirm Yeshua. And the reason they don't affirm Yeshua is because they, I don't believe they did contemplate one who would reject the oral law. One who would reject the Mishnah. So when Yeshua comes battling them on that front and saying that the acceptance of the Mishnah leads to hypocrisy. The acceptance of the Mishnah leads to violations of justice like in this trial. Um, not that the Mishnah leads to it as much as their, their misuse of it. But because he is, Yeshua is antagonistic with the religious leadership because, number one, they're leading the people astray. Well, how are they leading the people astray? By um, uh, establishing the Mishnah and the oral tradition and raising it above the written law. And thus, because of that, they are desirous of rejecting him. Now they need a, a, a basis for that condemnation and disqualification. And this notion of him claiming to be God, blaspheming, is the basis for it. Is there in modern orthodoxy the notion of the divinity of Messiah as well? Or is that pretty much rejected? I, I think it's pretty much rejected. But there are these statements um, but I'm not all up on what is going on in the rabbinic community these days. There may be some that uh, might say it or allude to it or come close to affirming it. But they ask him this second question. Uh, are you uh, the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And they then condemn him. Now, uh, if Yeshua is to die, he must die based upon Roman law, not Jewish law, and this creates another problem. Blasphemy was not punishable by death uh, according to Roman law. So in, this, in, um, in the trial before Rome, in the civil trial, this was a religious trial, in the civil trial they must have a different accusation. And Judas was not needed for the religious trial. He was needed to find Yeshua and to point him out. That's what they needed. But what they needed Judas for was the civil trial so that he could testify that he spoke out against Rome and claimed uh, to be a king in place of Caesar. Now, Pilate's going to question him about that. And Yeshua's going to say, I'm the king of truth. He's going to say that everyone who hears the truth believes my words. And Pilate's going to say, I do not see anything in Yeshua that suggests he had an agenda to overthrow Rome. We're going to get to that. But that's where they want to go. And that's why the key phrase is, we have no king but Caesar. Now they put Pilate in a very bad light because if they do not do what they're asking as ones who have no other king but Caesar, then how can the Roman governor be seen as an ally of Caesar if he's not willing to do what these who are affirming the kingship of Caesar are telling him he should do and that this person is an affront to Caesar. And that's what sort of uh, turns 
Pilate's hand. Now, Pilate ought to have done the right thing. When he then washes his hands and says, I'm innocent, well, that doesn't make him innocent. Six, seven times he says, I see no fault in this man. He declares him innocent six or seven times, but he never allows him to, to go free. Pilate's guilt is in condemning an innocent man. The Jewish people's guilt, is Jewish leaders' guilt, is uh, in raising a false charge and rejecting the messianic claims of Yeshua and, uh, and attributing his, uh, uh, his confirmation of those claims to the uh, working of the evil one. So in Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 3, looking at paragraph uh, 158, Matthew's account, verse 27. Now we're dealing with the suicide of Judas. It says, Then Judas, who betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Now on the surface, it appears that uh, Judas repented of this, and if he repented of it, then he would have been forgiven of his sin. But in Greek, there are two different words that are used. The typical Greek word that is used with regard to repentance unto salvation is the Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's mind. So repentance is to change your mind about what you have done and agree with God that is a violation of his character. And so when we repent of our sin, we're agreeing with God that our actions which are sinful are a violation of the character of God. So repentance means to change your mind. Conversion means to go another way, to move in another direction. So in the Jewish context, in the Messianic circle, we don't like the word conversion so much because over the centuries, it has come to denote ceasing to be something. But the Greek term doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean to cease to be Jewish. So many Jewish people say, well, if you've converted, you're no longer Jewish. But the term to translated to convert doesn't mean to no longer be something. It means to go in a new direction. So to convert means to move in a direction in which we are now affirming Yeshua as Messiah, whereas before we rejected him as Messiah. It means we are seeking to live for God, whereas before it, it, uh, we were not living for God. And so repentance and conversion are two sides of the coin that denotes salvation. We agree with God that what we have done is wrong. That's repentance. And we now are converted to walk in the ways of God and to affirm the things of God. The word for that is metanoia, to agree with God. That is not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the word metamelamai. It means to be remorseful or filled with regret. It doesn't mean that there's an agreement with God that this is sinful. 
what it means here. Rather, it would be better if we translated this. And Judas regretted that he did this. He regretted that he did this because when he goes to the chief priest for the 30 pieces of silver, he now realizes that they have manipulated the trial in a manner in which to find him guilty. And now he is wishing he hadn't been part of this conspiracy. But he is not repenting in the sense of agreeing with God. This was a wrong thing to do. He was only remorseful and he regretted it. But he hadn't changed his mind about what he had done. So he was not saved. And uh, as prophesied, he was uh, going to perdition, which is what Yeshua had said. It was better if this individual had not been born. In Matthew's account, verse 6, and let me just say that there are those that find contradictions in what we read of what happened to Yeshua, uh, to Judas, in Matthew 27, and what is described about what happened in Acts 1.18. So the question is this. In Matthew 6, it says, and he went away and he hanged himself. And then if you look at the Acts passage, it says, now this man obtained a field with the reward of his iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in, in the midst, and all his bowels or all his guts gushed out. So the question is, how did he die? Did he die by falling headlong and having his guts poured out? Or did he die by hanging himself? And um, interestingly enough, when I was li listening to Arnold's uh, take on this, I've oftentimes heard that he hung himself and then the limb broke and then he fell and out, you know, poured his guts. But Arnold had another take on it, which was very interesting. Um, his take is that uh, because the Jewish festival of Passover was being observed and the Sabbath was about to occur later that day, day, Friday evening, that no dead bodies were permitted in the city of Jerusalem, for then it would, um, it would render the city unholy, and then the festival of Passover, the offerings, could not be rightly offered. So when Judas hangs himself, he in a sense desecrates the city, because he is in the precincts of Jerusalem. So what Jewish authorities would have done with Judas is they would have taken his body, thrown it over the wall of the city of Jerusalem, outside the city, so that the city would now no longer be tainted by the de uh, a corpse in its midst. So that when, so both are true. When he hung himself, he had died. Now there was a corpse within the city limits, you might say. And then, so as to see that the city was cleansed so they could offer the sacrifice, they take his body, throw it over the wall of the city, and thus as he crashes to the ground, his guts uh, fall out. And as a result, now the city can celebrate the festival. That's his take on it. 
Uh, just for the record, uh, Bollinger's take is very interesting on this. Uh, you might want to Google it. He actually thinks that Judas was murdered. Okay. Okay. Bollinger always has those oddities. Um, the second... The second issue that that comes up is um, the regarding of the purchase of this field. Who purchased it? If you look at Matthew verses 6 to 10, it says that the chief priests purchased it. Verse 6. And the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's the price of blood. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Uh, wherefore, wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was, that was uh, priced, whom certain of the children of Israel did price, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord... Uh, as the Lord appointed me, as he quotes the passage. But in Luke one eighteen, it says that, and this man obtained a field with the reward of his iniquity. So did Judas obtain the field or did the chief priests? And uh, again, Arnold's take is that the, according to Jewish law, both statements are true. Money wrongfully gained could not be put into the temple treasury and Matthew 6 bears that out money had to be returned to the donor but if the donor dies before the money can be returned you could use the money to purchase something for the public good the money still could not be put into the temple treasury so they purchase a field to bury strangers in but the problem still had to ha had uh, to have the name, uh, the purchase still had to have the name of the donor. Thus, Judas purchased the field, though the chief priests uh, were the purchasing agents. So Judas, you know, they couldn't take money that was blood money and, and attribute it to the temple treasury. So. The purchase of the field is purchased in, in Judas's name. So he does purchase it because his name's on the deed. It's his. But the chief priests are the ones that actually um, uh, cause the deal to occur. And they have to use the money for the public good, not for any private good or something in the temple. So they purchase a field with which or in which they can uh, bury uh, individuals. And then the third discrepancy is at the end of the section, which is the quotation. Matthew says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was pierced, or that was priced, whom certain of the children of Israel did price, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. Matthew says the statement is quoted by Jeremiah, but it's actually from Zechariah. Now, there are three different ways that this, this discrepancy has been handled. One is that the first part of the statement is from Zechariah, 
Um, and the second part of the statement is from Jeremiah. He just doesn't mention Zechariah. That's one possibility. He says, as stated by Jeremiah, but it's both prophets. And perhaps he states Jeremiah rather than Zechariah because Jeremiah is a major prophet, whereas Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. So that's a possibility. Some have said that when a scroll is uh, opened, you can, you can set when, and the scroll that you have opened begins with the first book, though it may include other books in that scroll, you can say something like, it is quoted in the scroll of Jeremiah, although it's a later prophet within that scroll. But the, the problem with that is that the scroll of the prophets begins not with Jeremiah, but with Isaiah. So he could have said it is written in Isaiah and then quote Zechariah because the scroll would have all the prophets. And so the first book sometimes is made reference to to denote whatever is in the scroll that the first book uh, of that scroll is begun with. Uh, interesting issue again. Uh, seems to point to a discrepancy. Bullinger, of course, has a better explanation, which is that the term used in this text is turithen, which is the Greek for was spoken, rather than hograpti, which is was written. So it was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, and that there was an oral prophetic tradition which was as accepted as the written. But sometimes spoken, you know, like they'll say this is spoken by David, but it's actually written in the Psalms, right? Correct. But yeah. what I'm saying is that... It, you could say that. Yeah. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's not, it's not an inaccuracy. Is what is if that's the meaning. Yes. There's another way to take this as well. I was going to say it's interesting um, when wording can be a little bit more fantastic. More, uh, or, yeah, maybe fantastic is not a good word, but at least... Uh, uh, in a more vivid, descriptive, medical way. But the thing with Matthew is, it's just Matthew saying it, right? This passage, this segment here. Like when he quotes Zechariah and Jeremiah, but then he says, they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord uh, appointed me. He said it's spoken by Jeremiah. Bullinger's idea that... Um, Mitch just told us is that the word spoken is distinct from it's written in. And so he's saying that it was spoken by Jeremiah. But that would be an oral tradition because we don't have any statement that he ever spoke those words. So it's just a way that you can resolve it on that word. I don't know if that's, that, it, you know, is a strong thing for me. Uh, I don't like the idea of thinking that he said Jeremiah as an indicator of Zechariah. Because Zechariah is in a, in a scroll that's begun with Isaiah. If he said Isaiah, maybe that is how he's using it. But he does quote Jeremiah and Zechariah, but makes reference to Jeremiah and not Zechariah. And that might be because Zechariah is a major prophet. I mean, Jeremiah is a major prophet and Zechariah is not. I guess that's possible too. But um, there's another, Arnold has another idea, which is kind of interesting. Because... He believes that, or he suggests, that the quoting here has to do with Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel, writing his account, um, in which he traces 
the consequences of the unpardonable sin of Matthew, paragraph 61. Remember, that moment is critical. Matthew's the one that records that moment. And that moment is the most critical moment in all the gospel records. So you always have to keep that tucked in the back of your mind that the Jewish leaders, given the sign that this is truly the Messiah, and there's no doubt he's doing this rabbinic miracle of healing a man who can't speak. And the rabbi said, such an individual who can't speak because of demons will be cast out without the name of the demon because the Messiah will be able to do that. He does that, and in a, contrary to what the rabbis themselves t taught, the rabbis themselves reject him. So that theme, that idea, is something Matthew traces and the consequences of it, which is judge, the judgment that's to fall on the nation of Israel because of their rejection of Messiah as a result of their leaders. Now, notice what Luke says in Acts. He says, and that field was called a keldama. That is the field of blood. In Matthew's, Matthew's account, the, they gave them for the potter's field and quotes another passage. Now, this field of Akaldama comes out in, interestingly enough, in Jeremiah. Now, to understand this, you have to have a sense of the geography of the city of Jerusalem. So if you just picture this for a moment, if you take a bird's eye view of Jerusalem. So as we're looking down on Jerusalem, to its east, in your direction to your right, to the east of Jerusalem is the Kidron Valley. And above the Kidron Valley, and then above the valley is the Mount of Olives. And the Kidron Valley flows on the eastern side, and then it comes around to the southern side. When it comes around to the southern side, it meets up with what's referred to as Gehenon, the Hinnon Valley, which comes around, uh, comes around to the right. Now, what Arnold suggests is where the two valleys meet is um, a place called the Tophet. And the Tophet is the place where when the Israelites sacrificed during the time, of, just before the captivity, sacrificed their children to these false gods, that's where they sacrificed them. And that's where the burning of their bodies uh, as burned up to the Lord uh, took place. That is also referred to as, as you read here, the field of blood because of the death of these children that were sacrificed to these false gods. Now, this is what he says. The place where Jeremiah pronounced his specific curse on Israel, which would lead to the Babylonian captivity. But it couldn't just be to the Babylonian captivity because the curse that he pronounces on them is not fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity. It's much more pervasive than what happens with Babylon. The curse in Jeremiah chapters, he says, 15, 18, and 19, suggests the day will come when they will buy in the Tophet, 
where there is no, when there is no, they will bury in the Tophet when there's no more room to bury at all. In other words, to be buried in that place where the two valleys met was something the Jewish people did not do because it was the place where their children were being sacrificed and burned to the false gods that they were worshiping. So to be buried there was like, that's a horrible place to be buried because of what the area is known for. And what Jeremiah says in chapters 15, 18, 19 is that there would come a time when you will bury your dead in that place, which is a place that is horrendous to bury your dead in. They don't bury their dead there until 70 AD. And they are forced to bury their dead there because there are so many bodies that the Romans kill. 1.3, is it? One and a half million Jewish people are slaughtered in 70 AD. 73, 70, 67 to 73, 70 AD. That there's, no, there's not enough room to bury the dead. They are forced then to bury them in that place where um, they were sacrificing their children. Therefore, the, the, um, the captivity in 586 did not fulfill this prophecy. The prophecy that Jeremiah utters was only fulfilled in 70 AD when so many were killed that there simply was no room. So here's his point. The point of Matthew is that when they purchased this field in the Tophet, they purchased the curse of Jeremiah. And when the judgment of the unpardonable sin occurred, they buried their dead in that place which they had purchased. In other words, their purchasing of that place to bury the public dead, they never buried there before, was, a, they may not have realized it, but it was like a symbolic gesture that they were now unlocking the key of that curse and how did they unlock the key of that curse? It wasn't at the moment they purchased it. It was at the moment earlier when they rejected Messiah, which rejection would bring about the 70 AD judgment, which judgment would necessitate that area being used for burial. And this purchase of that property with money that was used to betray the Messiah of Israel sort of all coalesces together and thus signifies that, um, that the rejection of Messiah would bring about utter catastrophe on the people. That's how he understands why Matthew says, as it's spoken by Jeremiah, though he quotes both Jeremiah and Zechariah, because it's Jeremiah he wants us to focus on, which... A prophet stated the ramifications of the judgment that would result from the rejection of the Messiah. The burying of bodies in this horrendous place. And now, as we have that in mind, when the Jewish leaders purchase that place for the purpose of the public burials, they have no real idea the fuller extent of what they just did. They have further set in motion the uh, judgment that's to come or maybe they didn't further set but they 
establish the means by which that further judgment for the rejection of Messiah was going to be sort of exacerbated. It's enough that we're being judged, but then you're going to bury our dead in that place too? It's sort of a further signal. I think that's a very real possibility. So a new name is given to that place, the Tophet, the, that where it joins, a new name was given to it, which is an Aramaic word, which means the field of blood. They thus purchased the curse, which would come to fruition in 70 AD. Now let me just say one final thing here. Um, At this point, they no longer have the prosecuting witness they wanted to have before Pilate. They don't have that witness. And thus, further confusion is now set in order as the civil trial before Rome gets underway. They don't have their witness to, tell, to substantiate their claims that he was not a friend of Rome and was speaking out against Rome. So that's why when the trial gets underway and Pilate's looking for a witness to these accusations, there isn't any. He wants to now just sort of appease the crowd or appease uh, the Jewish leaders. And he says, listen, let me just send him over to Herod because he's a Galilean. Let Herod deal with it. Now, if Herod said, yeah, crucify him, he wouldn't be able to do that but because they'd need Roman jurisdiction. But he was hoping Herod might put him in prison. And maybe hold on to him for a long time like John. And maybe execute him another way. But he doesn't. He simply sends him back to Pilate. And now the hands are back in pot. So there's the, th remember, three stages. You have him before Annas, before Caiaphas, before the Sanhedrin. Now you're going to have him before Pilate, before Herod, before Pilate again. And when he's before Pilate the third, in the third stage, that's when they'll say, when he says, he questions him, he says, he's the king of truth. All who hear my words, um, follow me. So then he says, I don't find anything wrong with him. He's a Jew. Here's your king. I'll, I'll tell you what. Uh, how about when they continue to argue with him, how about Barabbas? You know, I mean, I'll give you a choice. I'm going to let somebody go. They say, we'll take Barabbas. He can't believe they're so dead set against this man who hasn't really done anything that they will let an avowed murderer, the Jewish leaders know he's a murderer, go free. And so at that point, he's exasperated. He says, this is your king. And that's when they say, we have no king but Caesar. And now Pilate's hand is forced. So, okay, we're after nine. So we'll just take a, a question or two and we'll take off. I haven't been here in a while, so I don't remember. Is the Valley of Tophet, is it, is it set aside by the Israeli authorities for anything? What today, are they doing? today, it's in... Uh, an Arab uh, area, it's really outside, it's in East Jerusalem, because it's outside the old city, and it is um, in the eastern side as you go down, I forget what they call that uh, area, but it's not far from Hezekiah's Tunnel, Right. and in that segment. Today, that would be encompass uh, where there's a small Arab village in there. Right. If I remember, it was a lot kind of, of a shanty stuff. town. Say again? Was it kind of a lower, like a shanty town kind of a thing? Well, I, I, um, you know, it's a lot of stone homes down there and that kind of thing. But I, I, I don't know how I would describe it. Like many of the other Arab 
uh, communities there. Do you think that the Valley of Ben Hinnom uh, is going to be the actual location of uh, Ghana? No, I think, I, I think it's symbolic. Just as um, these children were burned there and then later the refuse of the city in the valley itself, this Tophet is where the valley comes together, but the valley is bigger, uh, came to be an imagery of uh, the suffering and, and death and that would occur. Okay, are we good? Do you have a question, Clint? Well, interesting things. Next time, we're going to meet next week, and we'll announce it because I'm off schedule. Like right now, I'm at the same time Bob's got his thing going on. So next week, we'll meet again, and we'll pick up with uh, the Roman trial, which is where we go. And that's like um, uh, section 159. So this is the first time. And we're going to try to finish up that trial, um, which will bring us you know, to the cross. So hopefully then we get to the resurrection. So I'm hoping we're going to get done. And uh, so hang in there with me. <laughs> you guys are great. Oh, you're welcome. But let's pray. We'll be true through with the life of Messiah. Hopefully. Oh, you're talking about Mark or because I'm not doing that. You're talking about this? No, I'm hoping by uh, before the summer. That's what I'm hoping. And then we'll take a break during the summer, and then in the fall we'll pick up something on a... No? Well, we'll have Friday night. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see. Father, we thank you for this night. It's a joy to look at your words, a joy to be with one another. Grant us a safe trip home. And, Lord, we do want uh, to lift up to you those in our congregation that are ill, those that are going in for surgeries. Uh, we lift up to you our Passover Seder. May we reach out to many Jewish people. And we look forward to this coming worship service. And we just pray, Father, you fill this place up with each and every one, bringing glory and honor to you. And so, Lord, be with Adam as he puts together the worship and uh, work on all of our hearts so that when we come, we're ready to rejoice in you and to sing your praises. We pray in Yeshua's name.